Good morning, good news. It's good to see you this morning, or at least virtually. I promise I'm with you worshiping in my home as well and excited to sing with you and to hear this word uh, with you this morning. Uh, As we get started and we come to sit under the word, please join me in a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, I do thank you that you are with us now as always. I thank you that you have given us your word to learn from and to delight in and to be instructed by. I pray that you would go forth with it today, that you would instruct us in our hearts, would be quick to listen to you, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Those of you who have been with us know that we have been in the book of John. And last week, or the last week was Resurrection Sunday, the last week we were in John, we looked at the famous account of Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. Today we'll be taking up the next passage, if you'll look with me there, in John 3, 22. And as you turn there, we will be seeing Jesus, after his encounter with Nicodemus, going out to the Judean countryside, and interestingly enough, baptizing as John did. Uh, Look with me to verse 22. Read 22 through 24. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. So again, after his encounter with Nicodemus, we see that Jesus went to the wilderness of Judea and taught and was baptizing. The baptism, if you're wondering, would have probably been the same that John's was, a baptism for repentance for the forgive- and forgiveness of sins as the kingdom was coming. That would be Jesus' message as well. So if you will now, this puts John and Jesus running these neighboring ministries, right? And it's actually interesting, you see that it says that John was at Anon near Salem, which from what we can tell uh, from our maps in the back of our Bibles is that that is quite a bit north of Judea. And John's ministry had been centered in Judea. So it actually seems here that John may have moved his ministry north, particularly not to compete with Jesus, or perhaps just to cover more ground. We actually don't know for sure uh, why. But the fact is that, that they are now both doing this ministry of baptism and in separate places. And it shouldn't surprise us that with these two neighboring baptizers in town, people start to ask questions. Even when it was just John, people were coming, they were asking by what authority he did this. So now that there's two groups, people must be thinking, what, is just everyone going to do this now? And we see the question arises about this from a Jew in verse 25. Look with me at verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, you see, when it says purification, it's likely referring to baptism. And what the question is, we don't know. But from what happens next in the text, we can see and deduce that it probably had something to do with this two groups baptizing. Likely, some insinuation that Jesus' baptism was better than John's. You get there? It seems there was a a thought going around that Jesus' baptism was better than John's, or surely one of them must be deficient. And this insinuation 
digs at John's disciples. And so they go running to John like a couple of siblings ready to tattle on their brother, right? Look at verse 26 at what they say. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You see that? You see that, that tattling in their voice? Well, in this verse, we have before us the danger we're going to address today. We see the danger of jealousy over human attention. Jealousy over human attention, particularly as they are ministering and as Jesus is ministering. First, I want us to look at a few things that we see in the jealousy just in this verse, in verse 26. In their jealousy, we see selfishness rather than a servant's heart. You see, they should be excited that people are drawing near to the Lamb of God, as announced by John, but they are too distracted by the sense that they are now somehow less relevant because of this neighboring ministry. Now it's all about Jesus and His disciples. And secondly, in their jealousy, we see that we may become inappropriately attached to our favorite leaders. You see, think of how different these disciples' response is than Andrew and the other disciple we saw in chapter 1, who when John announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God, immediately left John and followed Jesus. They said, oh, this is the one who has come. So they naturally switched over their allegiance and followed Jesus. Not so with these disciples. You see, they know that Jesus is here, but they kind of miss out on Jesus because they're just too taken with this John the Baptist who is just a man. And finally, we see in their jealousy that it is exacerbated by this concern for what others think. You see, everything was going okay until this conversation comes up with this other Jew who is asking these questions. You see, they were once the baptizing guys. Now they're just last month's baptizing guys. And other people are seeing that. And other people are starting to think a little less of them because of it. And that these people just can't stand. Surely they can't think less of us. We're disciples of John. And this sense that they were somebody is threatened. And they are jealous. So seeing this in them, what are some of the implications for us? First, I would tell you this morning that we can be jealous of Jesus as we minister. We can be jealous of Jesus as we minister. Of course, we would never say this, but we can get irritated that He gets all of the credit and all of the glory. And when we feel this way, we wouldn't usually take any shots at Jesus. We just want to make sure people know what we do, right? I just need people to know that I do this. I'm a very valuable member in this church. I'm a valuable member of this ministry, and I do a lot. And we'll think of different ways, whether subtle or rather obvious, to put ourselves out there and to make sure people see and know. Because it isn't okay that Jesus gets all of it. I, I need to have my credit. And of course, with that, it doesn't just stop at Jesus. We can be jealous of other ministers who outshine us, if you will. Uh, 
everyone thinks so much of so-and-so, but I know that he's not doing this thing that I'm doing. Everyone is always commending so-and-so, but they never recognize what me and my team do behind the scenes. And with that, we can pick on each other as ministers and always have this giant contest, this big competitiveness to see who's the best minister or who deserves the accolades today. We can be jealous of other ministers who outshine us. And not only that, we can be jealous of other churches that outshine us. It can get even on a bigger scale. We can get irritated when another church is growing and doing well. Well, why did they get all the people who give so much? All the rich doctors are over there. How come we can't get a pastor who can preach like that? Probably because you didn't have a doctors that paid like that. Why can our church pro- children's program not look like that? And we compare ourselves to them in a very unhealthy way. And what scares me, and I've heard people talk like this, is deep inside, I think sometimes we would take all of those things from them for ourselves if we could. And this heart of envy runs deep even to our sister church. And finally, an implication we see for us is that we can be defensive of our ministers in a way that promotes pride in them. You see what they, the situation they put John in here where they act like it's just unbelievable anyone would go to anyone else like they should be coming to him. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor all of my years growing up. And in one of the churches that he was at, we had a youth group that was particularly large and robust. And one time, they gathered up all of the youth in vans, took them to a big conference. And they get there, and a speaker or two had gone, and it's about ready to get up the next speaker, maybe the third speaker in. One of these guys leans over and says, when's Pastor Paul going to preach? And they said, dude, Pastor Paul's not preaching it. This is a conference. (laughs) And he said, what are we doing here then? And that's essentially the way John's disciples are acting here. What are we doing here if John's not preaching? Why would they go to Jesus if, when John's here, why would they all go to him? And they act, they, they put John in this position of having a following that's more taken with him than Jesus. They're more taken with John than Jesus. And they're putting him in a very bad place to be puffed up. Do we do that to our ministers sometimes? Do we act like they're the best thing that came along and in that way actually endanger them? I fear we might. You see, none of us want to actually give in to this green monster of envy. Uh, Many times we don't even realize that we have fallen into jealousy. This is something that, as many other sins, we wander into, right? When we are not keeping a watchful eye on our hearts. How many of you know yourself well enough to know that you are indeed prone to wander? Don't you feel it? You're prone to leave the God you love, and you're prone to do things, to say things, to think things, and feel things that are not honoring to Him at all prone to make things about ourselves, prone to seek the approval of men for ourselves like these disciples of John. Is there anything we can do to keep our hearts from wandering where they should not go? Is there anything we can do to keep our hearts focused 
where they should be. I think there is. Growing up, when we had a dog and we wanted to keep him from wandering off, we put him in a fence in the backyard, a chain-link fence. Similarly, I raised my chickens in a chicken coop so they wouldn't wander off and foxes wouldn't wander in. And all of the cattle I've seen successfully raised have been in barbed wire fences. You say, well, that's great, Caleb, for animals, but I don't know if fences are made for humans. Well, what's a crib, tell me, except a little uh, tiny solitary prison cell for those little baby convicts? And baby gates are misnamed because they're really baby fences because you have no intention of letting the baby through there. It's to keep the baby in one place. And this idea of boundaries or barriers that starts with cribs and with baby gates and pack and plays extends to children when they're a little older. We set up fences or boundaries that they're to stay inside to keep them from certain dangers. Well, friends, my analogy is imperfect, but I hope you see the idea that we do need protected from things, don't we? And in order to do that, we need to set up some boundaries. And one thing that is off with my analogy is you can see parents a lot overprotect their children. But let me tell you, you will not overprotect your heart from evil. None of us here today will overprotect our hearts from evil. So with that, I hope that you'll be seeing that we need these fences to protect our hearts from jealousy. Because that selfishness and desire for applause is in each of us. Now, by fences, I mean spiritual truths that we hold dear. Principles that we remind ourselves of regularly to keep our heart from going where it shouldn't. In John the Baptist's response today, I think we're going to find three such fences Big pillars that we can hold on to that if are truly ingrained in our hearts will help keep us from jealousy. So fence number one in verse 27. God is in control. Fence one is that God is in control. Verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. When things get going someone else's way and we feel jealous, John says to remember that God gave it to them. When you envy someone else's outgoing personality, God gave it to them and yours to you. When you envy someone else's singing voice, God gave it to them and yours to you. When you envy someone else's leadership position, God gave it to them. And you probably don't really want it because leadership is a lot of work. If we envy the big churches across town because they have better attendance or giving programs or conversions, we must remember that all these things have been given to them by God. And we have been given at Good News what we have by God. If we see ourselves next to others and conclude that we need to be more like them because they are more like Jesus than us, okay, then envy them if they're more like Jesus and, and want to be more like Jesus. But other than that, if we think we should have everything they have, especially their applause, then shame on us for denying what God has given to them and despising what God has given to us because He's given us so much. When you start to feel jealous, ask yourself, 
if you really want to get upset about what God is doing, about what God is doing, because no one receives anything unless God gave it to him. See, there's two other implications I want us to look about. Success in ministry is divinely given, not methodologically attained. Hear that again. Success in ministry is divinely given, not methodologically attained. And that's what, what G, uh, John would be getting here uh, at here about Jesus, is that these people are going in because God gave them to him. It wasn't like anything different Jesus was doing necessarily. It was that God had given them to, to his hand. When we are truly succeeding in doing the Lord's work, it is He who will draw the people to us and open their ears to hear and their eyes to see. It's the work of the Lord and we dare not touch the credit. We dare not explain how we have these great strategies. We need rather to tell people our strategy is to simply obey the scriptures and live them before people and watch the Holy Spirit transform lives and minister to souls. That's His work. Now the second implication not only is it uh, not methodological, it is from the Lord. Those who come to Jesus come because of the hand of God. When it comes to conversions, when it comes to people coming, that is by the hand of God. This is one of the key ways that this text ties to the preceding. In verse 21, with Nicodemus, we see, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That they come to the light so that it may be clearly seen or revealed that their works have been carried out in God or by God or because of God. You see that? When people come to the light, it's about Him. And, and John picks up on that here. He says that these people are going to Jesus because they have been given to Him by God. And it's not the last time we'll see that. Real quickly, I'll read to you from, from John 6, in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And in uh, John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The idea here is that when it comes to conversions, never be jealous of someone else's work because they are all drawn by God. Friends, believing these truths about God and the way He works in ministry, about His sovereignty, will keep us from becoming competitive against others in our own body and against churches around us. Why? Because when we think like this, it's no longer about what we're doing, it's about what He's doing. See that? Look at John the Baptist. He served as a voice in the wilderness. He's deprived himself of the comforts and the luxuries of a normal life. He has committed everything to him, to his ministry and preaching, repentance in the coming kingdom. Now, all of a sudden, the crowds are leaving him. Once they hung on his every word. He was a messenger from God. He was a prophet. He was somebody and now it's all about Jesus. But he's not shaken. In fact, we're going to see he's delighted because he believes God was in control and he relished what God had given him and did not demand that he be given what was for Jesus. May we follow him as an example. So the first fence and we need to have in our hearts to keep us from envy is a deep conviction that God is in control. God is in control. Fence two, 
We are messengers, not Messiah, in verse 28. We are messengers, not Messiahs. You yourselves bear witness me, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You see, the first thing that we're seeing here is that John had taught his disciples better. He had told them that he wasn't the Messiah and that the other one was coming, and he told them that Jesus was him. They, like us, know that they are not... that they are not... Uh, they, like us, know that they are not Messiahs. They know that they're just messengers. Yet they, like us, do not want to give up this center of attention when the Messiah comes. You see that? On the one hand, they know they're not the Messiah, but they sure like to be the closest thing around. When they were the exclusive voices in the wilderness, they enjoyed a sense of being the ones who knew. They're really the guys. The ones that everyone needed to come to hear. But now, people are too busy listening to Jesus and his disciples to pay attention to them. And when they see that, they're having a hard time with it. Let's not be too hard on them this morning because do you have a hard time when you realize that people need what Jesus has to offer, not really what you have to offer? Perhaps even more humbling to know we don't have anything to offer if not for Jesus. And, and on the other hand, John the Baptist is the picture this morning of what it looks like to understand that we are not the Messiah. You see, first let me say, when, when I say this, when I demote us from being messiahs to messengers, I don't want to act like being a messenger is not an impressive thing. It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing privilege. It's an amazing gift. I think John knew that. You see, he was a confident messenger. He wasn't bashful. He, he proclaimed what the Lord had sent him to proclaim, and he lived as a bold example of righteousness, and he'll be known by Jesus as the greatest man who ever lived. But, he understands his limitations. He understands that in that way he's a voice, he can be an example. But he cannot make people right with God. He cannot atone for their sin. He cannot lead them to walk in righteousness. He cannot open the gates of paradise. We know that too, right? Don't we? If we do we should conclude what John clearly did. And friends, that is that we are not worthy of the attention and the applause due the Messiah. You see, John was a messenger, but he didn't want any accolades for that. He said back in chapter 1, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, Jesus' sandals. And, and what's more than that, if he could continue, I'm sure he would say, let alone keep the crowds at my feet while he is here. See, John knows that Jesus is worthy and he is not. Let us keep an honest and low opinion of ourselves alongside the Lamb of God. The same Lamb of God that John announced then and walked the earth then and the same Lamb of God that we read of in Revelation 5. Turn with me to Revelation 5, chapter 2, uh, verse 2. Chapter 5 and verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look into it. 
I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes and which are seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain by your, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Church, he is worthy not only to open that scroll, but also to the praise and the honor and the glory and all of the applause and all of the attention of anything worthwhile is due to his name. When we understand the supreme worthiness of the Messiah Jesus, for all the praise, we'll be unable to think of ourselves as missing our due. Because we'll realize we're not due anything, brothers and sisters. Rather, we owe Him everything. So the second fence to keep us from wandering into jealousy is that we are messengers, not messiahs. And because of that, we are not the worthy ones of all the praise. But Jesus is. Let us keep our Messiah before our faces. Keep our Messiah before our face. Fence 3. Fence 3 today will be in 29 and 30. John 3, verses 29 and 30. True friends are joyful, not jealous. True friends are joyful, not jealous. Read with me. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. In John's wedding analogy, the first thing he establishes is that the people belong with Jesus. He says essentially this. He says, look boys, you go to a random reception and you don't know anybody there and you're kind of curious which person is the, the, in the bride party is the groom. You could do a lot of things. You could do your detective work. You could ask a lot of people. But wouldn't it be a pretty good guess to say that the guy who has the bride on his arm all the whole evening is probably the groom. You see, John is making the point that the people are going to Jesus because they belong to Jesus. You see that? He is the groom they have waited to see for so long. And where, where is all this coming from? Why, why, this, why this bridegroom imagery? Well, actually... In the Old Testament, multiple places we see that 
Yahweh, God, had referred to Israel, his people, as his bride, and he as their husband. And particularly, there's a prophecy in Hosea 2, if you'll turn there with me, Hosea 2, that beginning in verse 16, there's a prophecy here that I think John sees being fulfilled in Jesus. John has the foresight and the insight from the Spirit to understand this is what's going on. Hosea 2, 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. So John knows this prophecy and he sees that it's being fulfilled in the days of Jesus. He sees that the people belong with Jesus because he is the long-awaited groom. And how does he feel about that? So that's his understanding of the identity of what's going here, going on here. These people aren't just randomly anybody's people. This is God's people and they belong with his Messiah, the groom. But how does he feel about that? That the people belong with him, Jesus and not with him? Well, in the analogy, John says that he is the friend of Jesus. And therefore, he says, he is joyful, not jealous for his union with the bride. I've been a very blessed man myself with friends. Uh, when I got married almost a year ago now, I stood up with some of the best men I know, three great men. All of them have been single for many years. We had gone through that together. We prayed together for wives. And of the ones there, I was the first to marry. And on that day of my wedding, even though their hearts were sore and longing for a bride, when my bride walked down the aisle to me, I guarantee you with no hesitation that every one of those fine men felt no jealousy over the matter. At least in that moment, because in that moment I can speak for them to the man that because they are good men and they love me so very much that they are so, are so filled with joy that they had no room for jealousy. You see, we delight in the joys of one another. Friends don't want to take each other's joys for themselves. Let me ask you, as we minister, are we good friends to Jesus and our fellow ministers in that way? Do we delight in their victories? Does it really make our hearts sing when good things happen for them? Or do we want to be at the front of the pack of ministry, success, and recognition? Excuse me. I think many times we do. I would, ha I would ask you to examine your heart in that and see if you're being a good friend to those in your life. 
Uh, finally, a small thing that is very important in this verse is that John says that uh, he, is he as a friend rejoices at the bridegroom's voice. To hear his voice. Well, this is very key because the whole issue here is that the people have left John's voice to go and listen to Jesus' voice. You see, John the Baptist was the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, the greatest man born among women. And it's like he was being faded out. And Jesus' voice has taken over. Uh, he must increase, but I must decrease, says verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. What humility. In a way, doesn't that kind of feel like a sad way for John to end his ministry? No, that'd be wrong. John says, this is what I wanted. This is what makes my joy complete. Church, this too should be our goal as we minister. To find, we want people to find themselves with only Jesus before them as their bridegroom to whom they belong so that you and me as ministers just fade off into the background and delight in the fact that someone else has been pushed closer to Jesus because that's what we want. In closing today, if you are hearing the voice of the groom this morning, if you are hearing Jesus calling you to repent, because you're His bride. He loves you so very much. He sees the way you minister. He sees the way you strive. He appreciates it so much. Have you had a tugging at your heart? If you have, if you have had that tugging at your heart, I encourage you today, please don't drown him out. Listen to the voice of the groom. He loves you. He cares for you. And He will hold you in His arms. He'll forgive you if you've committed this sin of envy, and He will heal you and make it to where you can be that good friend who rejoices. And finally to all of us, don't wait to fall into the pit of envy. Okay? Don't wait to just fall in the pit of envy. Don't not watch your heart. Put up these fences in your heart. One, that God is in control and He is no one receives anything unless He gives it to them. Two, we are messengers, not messiahs. And because of that, Jesus is the Messiah who's worthy of everything and we're not that worthy. And we don't deserve all that credit that, that Satan tells us we do. And finally, three, true friends are joyful, not jealous, when their other friends succeed. They're joyful, not jealous. I pray that you will have heard this word today, that you will be putting up these fences in your heart that you may not sin against God. Let me pray for you. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it ministers to us, that it helps us. Father, I pray for Good News Bible Church and anyone else hearing this message that we would be a people who are indeed humble, bathed in the humility that it takes to, for all of these things, to give things to your control, Lord, to acknowledge who we are compared to you, and Lord, to put others before ourselves. We need your help for that, and we want it, Father. And we thank you that Jesus has paid it all for us so that we might be forgiven when we fail. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Goodbye, good news. I'll see you soon.